Welcome back to the Y Hockey Periodical Podcast, where we're not going to ask you to see any pictures on your phone. No private, private photo reels. That's what we're all about here. Hit, hidden albums out there, anybody? I mean, I have an Android, so I guess I have to work harder to make that one work. But uh, well, if yeah. people wanted to see the pictures on my phone, you might see pictures of my broadcasting positions from college soccer games. Also on my Instagram, which I use to basically dump views from the booth photos, because that's really the only pictures I take at this point. Uh, so my- if Mike Babcock was going to put my pictures up in front of a hockey team, he'd be like, wow, you're calling some sports from interesting positions. And I'd go, it's not the most interesting position. Do you want to hear the story of when I called the game from a barn in Iowa, essentially? I've told that story before, but regardless of that... <laughs> Mine would be an assortment of screenshots. So basically, my basically a uh, curated search history, and then uh, pictures of cats. I was about to say there were going to be pictures of cats on there. Yeah, cats, dogs, any animals that are on my property or things like that. You know, just. But yeah, I honestly think that this is a. I mean, outside of the people involved, you know, having to deal with this shit but i think this is the funniest thing ever um mike babcock i think is one of the most overrated coaches at least of our lifetime and uh i i'm so happy that you know his true colors continue to be to get shined and shown on full display i can't believe they hired him i think this is a a pretty good indictment of what's going wrong with columbus and it's front office related uh, decision making uh, hasn't been the same as it was. Whether they got lucky before and now um, it's catching up to them, or if they've changed the way they've make made decisions, I don't know. Or who makes decisions, I don't know. But um, really disappointing from somebody who doesn't want Columbus to be bad and or relocated. But when things like this happen, I start to root for you know, relocation or you sucking or you being folded, you know, it's well, just how I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I want to get to the Babcock thing in more, you know, detail and not joking about it in a second, but it is, if there were actually writers working right now, solidarity to the writers and actors, by the way, you deserve everything that you should get in your negotiations with a bunch of greedy studio executives. This would actually be really funny fodder for late night talk shows. If they actually cared about hockey, because it would be like if this was an NFL yeah, scandal, you, you'd hear about it all the time, and it would yeah. be absolutely hilarious. And he was in a bit, a, even a small market NFL team, if there is one. I mean, we yes, are the Jaguars are definitely one of them. And uh, I can tell you, the Urban Meyer stuff when he's you know caught with a, his hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, at a bar he owns after a loss. I mean, people made fun of that, rightfully so couple housekeeping notes I want to get on, on the show before we get into the, the meat of so much we have to get to, you know, after our summer break. First and foremost, I want to talk about uh, congratulations to uh, Corey Snyder and his lovely partner on the birth of their daughter, Allison. He's been posting uh, some baby pictures, and that's awesome. Congratulations to both of them. Yes. Wonderful human yes. beings. Congratulations. They deserve, they deserve all the good in the world, and uh, we're, we're excited for him. Obviously, Corey's one of our favorites. We have him on the show all the time. Uh, don't worry, the, the worst days of parenting are going to happen now, and then it'll get better as it goes on, uh, being up at 2 yeah. in the morning. You know, he, he's tweeting about it. Uh, so, congratulations to him. Cannot say congratulations enough. Also, congratulations to Sean Tierney. Remember him on our show a while back? 
He's now working for the Senators. I mean, you know, I can't exactly endorse, you know, running the Senators to win necessarily if it means the Panthers <laughs> miss the playoffs, but I do endorse him getting a job. He's wonderful. He's done great work, and you know, he's going to make the Senators better, and you don't want to root actively for teams to be terrible unless they've done Columbus-type things. Uh, and the Senators now will have new ownership, so congratulations to him. I also want to say congratulations. This was just announced today. Steph Driver and uh, our friends at the Litter Box, Litter Box Cats, they've launched four hockey fans. Uh, it's basically trying to reunite all the SB Nation crew that Vox destroyed for absolutely no reason other than they're incompetent. So congratulations to all of them. I, Japers Rink is there. I think Raw Charge is there. A lot of the old, you know, your old favorite SB Nation blogs have basically been restarted in this way. And that means a lot of good writers still are going to get an opportunity. A lot of good blogs are still going to get an opportunity. And Steph is obviously wonderful. So congratulations to all of them on hard work that they've put in to launch this. And we wish them nothing but the greatest success. So they're going to be ready for the season. That's great. Yes, it's absolutely awesome. In a day when the New York Times sports section effectively shut down because, again, run by idiots, to see something launched like this for hockey fans with people you already know do incredible work and are going to continue to do incredible work, have to shout those people out. And congratulations to all of them. Again, the amount of hard work to put in to do this, you know, eight months since SB Nation did a bunch of really stupid crap and, you know, Steph putting in all that work. We know how hard she works. So, again, hearty congratulations to everybody there. Wanted to make sure that we got that in off the top of the show because you don't want well, to be while, all bad. While we're doing this, we might as well say congratulations uh, to all those getting drafted today in the PWH. Oh, absolutely, yes. I, I should be following that a lot more closely than, well, than I, I have wanna, been. If, if one of our listeners wants to follow closely, hopefully more than one, I'm sure Victory Press uh, has you covered. Uh, the uh, what was it? the it's the Ice Garden is another good yeah. site that yeah. they they do a lot of good women's hockey coverage. I, I guess we're going to talk about that league more in the future. I've really wanted to get somebody on who knows women's hockey better than both of us do to talk about all of the stuff that's going on with the league yeah. and how it's getting off to uh, the start it's getting off to. But it, it feels big time. Brian Burke being uh, working with the women's uh, players union, I think that's obviously pretty good. You know, I I have always, of course, for obvious of, reasons, of course, been a fan of Brian know, Burke. So, yeah, of course, somehow they they had to bring in an old old hockey head. You know, yeah, but if there's <laughs> anybody in the old hockey sphere that can think new school and actually do the work for for women's hockey, yeah, that I know he can do. He's gonna he's gonna put his all into it. Easy joke. Um, yes, yeah, it is. But, but I'm excited. I'm excited that finally it seems like there's going to be a professional league that is treating their their players like professionals um it's long long been overdue and i hope at some point they really are on equal footing with some of these professional men's league leagues that we see because you know it really is a shame and i think you know especially for the players who spend their whole lives training and, you know, they just want to play hockey and they're good enough to do it for a living. And, you know, you're basically getting dressed in, like, travel teams' locker rooms. You're, you know, you're not getting paid very well or if at all. You know, you're paying for all your own gear and stuff like this. You're working. You're, you're, you're making all these sacrifices. Uh, and, you know, you have to sell tickets, too. You know, things like that. So... 
this it's really good that you know this is not going to be the case moving forward and uh i i hope that you know there's people who tune into the games they go to the games and this is just you know a stepping stone and in a couple years we look back and we we can't believe how far it's come and why this you know the treatment that they're getting wasn't always the case if you watched some PHF games in the past, I knew a bunch of the people who were broadcasting uh, those games, and obviously they did care. I hope that this gets the treatment it deserves, because we, we know that this sport has so much potential. I, I see it yeah. with, the, with the NWSL, which is fine. I mean, they've had a lot of issues, and that's not a topic for this podcast, but you know they've expanded to 14 teams next year. The WNBA is on solid footing like... Women's hockey, unfortunately, was always going to have these growing pains when it came to getting a league. That's just how it works, unfortunately, in women's sports. The the history of women's leagues for soccer in this country have been, I mean, the history is another topic entirely, but it's been so rocky, but now there is stability in NWSL, and that is a fully-fledged, fully-formed league. This women's league, I think, it's got great chance of survival. The thing that stinks is, like, there are markets who should probably have a women's hockey team that don't. I get why they did it this way with, you know, the three yeah. teams in Canada and the three teams in the U.S. I completely understand it. Um, I think that we're not anywhere near the kind of expansion that I think we'd like to see. Because six teams, I know why it's that little at this point in time. But you're going to see it in, and again, I also understand the three markets they picked. It makes perfect sense. But, like, there should be more coming like there could be a Chicago team there should probably be a Detroit team you'd like to I obviously we'd like to see a team here uh in in the in the Delaware Valley they're gonna be more teams but I hope that it works I hope the growth makes sense for what they're doing and I hope the NHL and it looks like they're actually gonna do some legitimate work with this new league to you know combine forces in areas where it makes sense and if they can do that then you actually have a very stable league, and that's what everybody needs. And for everything we've said about all these other leagues, it's the first league that we've had that's legitimately had all the best players playing in it at the same time. And that is something we haven't seen yet, and that's going to be extremely exciting. You know, we're going to get the microcosm of the USA-Canada women's rivalry in some of these games, and obviously there are incredible stories of, like, members of the U.S. and Canada team marrying each other, so, like, that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait for that. So, anyway, congrats to everybody uh, who's been drafted today. Congrats to the Women's League. That's extremely exciting. And congrats to everyone. There's a lot of good things to talk about, even if it sometimes feels that there's a lot of unfortunate news we have to get to. There's a lot of good news to get to on the top yeah. of this show. And, and, and now the unfortunate news we have to get to. And now to Mike Babcock, which is highly unfortunate that we even have to consider, although there is good news, I guess, Mike Babcock will not be coaching hockey anymore. Zero um, games must be... Uh... The sh I have to think it's one of the shortest tenures and most pitiful tenures of a head coach. I mean, he made it, what, a couple team meetings? couple team <laughs> meetings. That's And I don't even know how many pictures he got a chance to see. How many dogs? How many weddings did he get a chance to see? <laughs> how many, uh, yeah. I, I mean, know. there were a I, lot I don't of even... this summer. A lot of hockey players got married. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to say about this. Uh, like, I just, to me, it's just like, when when this is exactly what everybody who's been complaining about the NHL the NHL is the most head in the sand league 
I think professionally in North America, the the way they treat their fans like we're idiots saying how nobody nobody doesn't like the boards. Nobody has problems seeing the puck with the new digital board dis- display and things like that and you know just poo-pooing concussions for all those years and and you know they want to go back to Atlanta again and you know just like all I don't the- I don't have as much of an issue with that as some people do but again okay. another topic but for anyway, another day. You know I just they, they let Babcock come back with no no overt or 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 you know show of change in him as a man a person a coach um you know what did he do he coached college for a little bit not and... just college U sports the canadian university system that yeah. is not you know it's not american college hockey right but you know like they're they're really and the way he always has talked about it is basically he talks about it in a very vague standoffish PR way and puts it in a passive voice like it's happening to him versus a situation of his own creation. And, um, you know, the fact that it happened so quickly just really shows that when these the process of these these coaches or the general managers in the case of uh bet uh um sorry not betman um god that would be terrifying oh uh yarmo bowman bowman oh bowman too yes bowman you know like in their coming back like the process is basically they come in they talk to betman betman just is like in his gut is like oh yeah these guys are good these guys are fine they they're uh you know rehabbed um they're and and you know GMs, they just think about the wins and losses. The exact same issue w- what happened in Chicago, where they prioritized wins and losses and guys who were experts at hockey on the ice versus being, you know, bosses off the ice and people in positions of power, and uh, you know, and just being just frankly aware of just other people's boundaries. It's and it's not even something like oh only people in positions of power should know this. This is, you know, anybody who works for a company would know this. That this is not appropriate for you to do to to base to put pressure on people to share to all their pictures on their phone or a subset of pictures on their phone or whatever. Um, if it's, you know, pictures, you know, you get, hey, can you just send me two or three pictures from your summer, you know, and you and we'll show them all together and stuff and you get to kind of curate two, two pictures and whatever. I think that's a little different, but that obviously wasn't the case by the NHLPA's investigation because, you know, uh, Frank Saravalli and a lot of other people were tweeting that, you know, based on the NHLPA investigation, there was no route forward besides Babcock not being the coach. So they must, there was something that the players said in the investigation that the union felt strongly enough to stand up for and basically tell Babcock, the NHL, and Columbus, like, listen, this is happening, like, he's, we're going to make a big noise or this can just, you know, or you can get rid of him right now. And, uh, obviously he doesn't get fired because that means Columbus would have to pay him. 
so uh, he resigns. Well, saves, saves a little face, I guess, in his eyes. Well, but, doesn't it remind you of something? Ahem, yeah, ahem. Um, yeah, and and think about think about his statement. I thought his statement was worse than Quinville's statement, bar none, and and a lot of other people's statements. He basically says he's resigning because he doesn't want it to be a distraction. Um, For all those years, yeah. all of those players being told they were a distraction. Oi, oi, oi. How the tables yeah. have turned. Uh, here's what I think about this. I mean, it's clear that this was becoming untenable uh, very, very quickly. Because, you know, when you hear about the details through what's been reported, it's kind of through the looking glass in some way. You're going to interpret it differently. When I first heard... You know, Mike Babcock wants to see the pictures on your phone, and when you hear some of the process of it, you'd go, okay, that's really weird. Like, why would you do it that way as opposed to, oh, why don't, here's a, here's a picture of my, you know, I just, my wife just had a baby. Here's a picture of that. Here's a picture of the cottage or, you know, it's bizarre. Like, when you hear it on its face, you go, that doesn't seem that bad. And then you see how Babcock did it, and you're like, okay, that's really weird. Why would you do it this way? Because there are almost certainly other stories out there. I think Friedman told, or Merrick told a story on, on 32 Thoughts about how another coach did it. And it's like, it's a little strange, but it's not that yeah. out of, you know. But it's how you do it, how it's perceived. And Mike Babcock certainly does not understand one of the great lessons I learned when I had to take social skills classes when I was younger. The way your message goes out into the world is not the same how it's going to be perceived. And Mike Babcock right. gets no benefit of the doubt with how his message is going to be perceived. No. And rightly so, because he has not earned it. And while if it was Bruce Boudreaux or any other coach who did something like this, you'd go, that's really weird. Why would you do it this way? You'd probably give that coach the benefit of the doubt because they don't have the reputation that precedes them. My first thought was, as it always comes along with me, um, if there is a closeted player in that organization, which, again, I don't know if there is or not. Nobody does. And you had to give your pictures on your phone to Mike Babcock. I can definitely understand why you would be freaked the hell out. That would not be something that would be kosher. Yeah. If there was something on, even if there was something on there and you weren't in that situation and you didn't yeah. want to see, it's your own phone. Like, that's kind of the... Yeah, I mean, you know, it could be. it could be a lot of things. I mean... Anything that someone perceives to be outside of the team dynamics or, you know, not in the majority opinion, they might not want other people knowing, especially when it's in a situation where, you know, in these situations, you're kind of set up to get laughed at, you know, like what when you kind of get pulled up to the front of the room and you get you show your pictures. yeah that's the other uh, dynamic on it that's really really strange like why is it like a fifth grade you know like the first day of class in fifth grade that's just weird you're eliciting some sort of emotion whether it's cheers or jeers or something you know like it's it's at or, some or point here's a dumb picture of me and yeah. my boys at the cottage yeah. but you know. i mean yeah I don't know which way you want to go in the conversation with this, but if you want to talk about the here's uh, where I I go to, there's two angles on this that the, I want to get the boy to. who the boy who the the tr the trustworthiness of the messenger uh, aspect of it with Biz and 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 a lot of people basically pouring water on it just because it came from him or you know and backing up the 
you know, Babcock and taking his opinion, even people like Rachel Dory, who found herself in a similar situation where she was let go and a lot of people didn't know why and there's a lot of rumors and speculations and, you know, we still don't really know what happened. She immediately jumped to the defense of Babcock, as did a lot of people in the mainstream media. I mean, Dreger, I mean, there's a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, to me, that also shows the issue with this culture, that people, even people you would expect to know better, people in journalism, people um, who have undergone the same things or people who are in groups that often get misunderstood and maligned uh, would or aren't believed also. Um, you know, they would want to uh, ha have someone get their say and not poo-poo it, not smack it down right away and, and have a little more patience. Um, because as much as I don't like Biz, he has a lot on the line. He has contracts. He's on national TV. I mean, he is a sp he does sponsor things. You know, if he – and he does a podcast where – he gets p players to come on show personality and tell stories they normally wouldn't tell. If he goes and opens his mouth when he shouldn't and isn't right, that all goes away. Players are less likely to tell him real stuff or the good stuff or all of it, or he'll get less players or he won't get any at all. He'll be less trusted. He could, you know, start to lose some of the reputation he's built, you know, from last year on on TNT. So I want to start with that because you've you've led into the the segue here. With him, his tweet about um you know no spit or lube. I mean, watch it, watch well, it, Buster. Care, careful with well, that. Well, I'm not. I'm, I don't. I, I'm just only saying bringing. The no, no, I understand that. I'm just going to say his, in this case, buddy, got to watch that yeah, because yeah, his, that, that his, that's that. I. In my position as a journalist, I understand, you know, the dynamics here are complicated. With him, while the company he's associated with almost always operates in bad faith deliberately, he does not do that. Now, my belief is I don't think Paul Bissonnette is capable of operating at that level of bad faith because that's not in his nature. Again, right. backhanded compliment, but like, so if anybody was saying, like, what is his agenda here? Paul Bissonnette has no agenda. I don't think he's capable of having an agenda. He's it's... just a guy who has a lot of contact with players. Whether you think it is right or wrong that players feel comfortable talking to him about whatever it is they want to talk about, that's another discussion. But it's very clear that he's plugged in with the players. He's got the pulse of knowing what's going on, current and former players. You know what I mean? And yeah. so for him to operate in bad faith in this situation would be to throw his own, you know, friends under the bus, which why would he do that? So he's definitely not operating in bad faith here. And as I said, that meant that once this was being reported by him and throwing it out as an anecdote, he's not throwing it out in the same way, a, you know, a reporter would do so. Like, you have to take it seriously in this instance because... He has the trust of these people, and you know they have every reason to trust him. So yep. the the reporting on the story as it goes on, when it's being played as a game of telephone, essentially, 
because it starts here and then it snowballs. From my position, the dance you have to do in making sure you get this story nailed on is a very difficult one because you're going to be getting information from different kinds of places, different kinds of people, and we don't know who their specific sources are in the case of, say, a Friedman or a Dreger or whatever. You know, you can say what it is you want. I understand the journalistic process behind this. You got to get it nailed on. You have to get it right. Because if you don't get it right, yeah. it could make the situation worse in a whole myriad of ways. And my motto is, and the motto of all journalism should be, we got to get this right. We, we, we don't need to be first. Just got to get it right. So when it comes to reporting this, you have to take care in understanding the context because when the PA is investigating this, they might find something different than you would find in your reporting. Now, does that mean that there is stuff that these reporters know on background, off the record, that they can't report publicly? I'm almost sure of that because even I get to hear things about Babcock. You know, these stories are widespread, but when it comes to the very specific reporting of this story, the challenge and the dynamic of reporting it correctly does add something different to the equation. It's not like tracking down a contract or tracking down a trade. That makes this more difficult, I think, from a journalistic perspective because everybody's walking on eggshells because they want to get it right. And also, they understand the context of the situation. They understand what Babcock has gone through. We all saw it when it came to the end of his time in Toronto. We all saw what happened when that Mitch Marner story was reported. And because the early details are what they are, and because, as I said earlier, this is a through-the-looking-glass story, the way Boone Jenner, who is married is going to look at this story as opposed to some 20-year-old who is in his first NHL training camp is going to look at it is so different. And the experiences are all going to be in the eye of the, you know, the interpreter or the beholder, so to speak. You know what I mean? That makes reporting on this story even more complicated than it might be otherwise. So I am going to defend journalists in some cases. Look, there's plenty of things that happen in mainstream media that I am not defending. You've already heard it in this podcast. So I think that in this case, criticizing these journalists for some of the work that they're doing when we don't have the complete picture is hard to do because the process of reporting is so much more nuanced than it looks from the outside when people are tweeting and people are writing because they don't have the complete information and stories do take longer to report. Once this comes into the public sphere, so to speak, then there might be more of a snowball effect. Somebody's going to feel more comfortable sharing once this gets out and players talk. And again, who are you talking to? What is your reason for talking? Because there are people who have the correct opinion on Mike Babcock that operate in bad faith too. Like That is also part of this equation. So it's a lot you have to parse out. But the outcome that happened here is the correct one. Babcock shouldn't be the coach. If you can't engender the full confidence of the players in this particular instance, then you have no chance of doing it when it comes to actually playing hockey. And Mike Babcock, whether he doesn't understand fundamentally what he did wrong here, I think that's also part of it. Like, he's been doing this for a long time. He's an older man. He's pretty set in his ways. Well, we all you, know that, right? 
Yeah. Well, and I so, mean, what do you what do you think about the Columbus front office? On the front office, I was listening to some other podcasts. I think it was Steve Dangle, might have been uh, the Chris Johnston show. When I listened to what they were saying, this is a difficult situation for the Blue Jackets because let's think about it. They are a team that has struggled to attract coaches and attract players. And some of that is their own fault, quite clearly. Some of it is also things they cannot control. Players would like to be in other cities than Columbus, Ohio. In some ways, I can't blame them. In other ways, you know, these are personal decisions. So when you think, in the mind of the stereotypical hockey GM, the GM that likes to recycle coaches over and over and over again, I can get a coach that won a Stanley Cup, that won a gold medal, that has this really strong resume to come in and he's cheaper than he would otherwise. And for the Blue Jackets, that probably does matter somewhat. You can't pay the same sort of coaching salaries that the Maple Leafs pay or somebody else pays, right? It is a gamble, but you also know that Yarmo Kekalainen and John Davidson feel a ton of pressure to gamble because they their last head coaching hire was a disaster. Last season was a disaster. Most of it was not their fault. You know, a lot of players got injured, but they're feeling pressure to show results. You know, that market, while it is Columbus, like, there is pressure to get something done here. It's clear that they're trying okay. to win. They're not deliberately tanking again. All the moves they've made are indicated that. Though, Whether you think they actually are going to win is a different discussion. But they swung and missed so badly here that he doesn't even make it to the season that you absolutely have to question their judgment as to whether they are able to make the decisions they have to make. I've been a Yarmo defender for a while. I've been a fan of his work. I like John Davidson. What is he? What have they done lately? And the thing is, they've been stuck on tilt. They've been stuck in gamble mode since they gambled and went all in for that playoff run and and beat Tampa. And, you know, they, they did some gambles of letting guys, you know, holding them instead of trading them and let them walk in UFA. They, you know, made some trades to to bring in some guys. And ever since then, they've just been in gamble mode to try to make up for the losses. And when you keep gambling and losing and then doubling down and tripling down and you know, you find yourself constantly making decisions from a bad position. And you know it's a bad position when you are trying to look at past accomplishments and like, oh, well, we're getting this guy on a dis- discount and we have, you know, there's gold medals and he got a Stanley Cup and this and that. But Your point on most- Babcock being overrated is well taken. Yeah. I agree and- with you. He hasn't won anything since he had the greatest assemblage of talent maybe ever seen in hockey for that 2014 gold medal team or an NHL team with Nick Lidstrom on it. Or right. a red-hot goalie, let's say 2003, and, which is where he made his name. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was given ample amount of money and resources in Toronto to get something done, and he couldn't. He didn't come close. And to me, you know, you got to say... How is he keeping up with the game? How is he going to take a young team and get them to the point where they can compete? It's not like a John Tortorella where there's at least that little bit of success. Like, look what he did in Columbus. He did pretty well in Columbus, 
the, this crappy franchise I'm talking about right now, uh, with you know with Bobrovsky and stuff, and he's given them the recent highs that they can talk about. You know, he's he's been their best coach in franchise history, and so the Flyers what a taking preposterously him, low bar that is. Right, but I mean, at least you know the Flyers taking him for for a young team and everything. It's like okay, well. You know, he did make he did make a roster overachieve. He has, you know, made guys it give guys NHL careers that like otherwise wouldn't. And when you're rebuilding, you want to send some guys out and you want to rehab some guys' reputation. You want to make AHLers matriculate to the NHL. He's not a bad he's not a bad option. And, uh, and for whatever you think option, of his coaching but, style and the way he treats the media. As far as we know, there are no stories about him in the same way there is for Babcock or any of that right. other ilk. You know, like, he's got a exactly. decent yeah. enough reputation. And the same thing with Paul Maurice, too. Like, quibble about the actual X's and O's. He has the reputation of being a legitimately decent human being, which goes a yeah. long way when you see a bunch of people who are not legitimately decent human beings. And on the subject of Yarmo and all of them, like, I like their their player acquisitions, you know, Bill Zito obviously came from Columbus and has done a very good job right. in Florida. But, so something good was happening there, but I mean, we're, his we're, coaching we're, hires have been terrible. They, they've had some, a couple really questionable draft choices. I mean, obviously they've buoyed that by just being really safe and taking a lot of defensemen, talented athletic defensemen, and just hoping that by hoarding that up, they can, they can fill the rest of the roster. But, um, you know, this is this. They really have. I, I mean, I don't know what they were doing with Johnny Gaudreau. I don't know what they were doing with the Dubois Dubois for line A trade. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that just like there really wasn't. It's maybe good value or maybe wow, I can't believe he was able to get that done. Or you know, you know that's an intriguing draft pick and it's kind of working out. But where you know. There's not like a team that he's every year they're like trying to rebuild and rebrand and like find a central point for the team and stuff and like find an identity, find a path forward. And that shouldn't happen this long into some people's tenures. No, I, I agree Davidson, with you. Davidson and Yarmo specifically. Um, but there's probably more people behind the scenes that that. In, I mean, in we know that. They've hired, like, Rick Nash works in that organization, you know, some of the hockey, you know, our, our favorite computer boys I mean, work in that if, organization, if, you know. If it was me, I would basically, I wouldn't have fired Yarmo right now because going into the season without a general manager and without a coach and just kind of bumping up the next guy in line because what, what else are you going to do at this point? You need somebody who's already kind of keyed in and clued in to what's going on to, to, to get through training camp and the next little bit. But, you know, I think if I'm the owner of Columbus, I'm having uh, a headhunter go and look for Yarmo's replacement and Yarmo better have a great, you know, first couple months and really have a good plan for me when I meet for, with him at the end of the year or early January or whatever and, you know, I better be pretty happy or, you know, he's going to be done at the end of the year. Because it's not this – it's not that this was – this hiring Babcock was an automatic firing. It's – I just 
I don't see Columbus taking another step until they replace their front office because the front office keeps gambling too much and losing on these gambles and nothing seems to be cohesive and I know I know from experience what that's like how much a franchise can flounder in that semi rebuilding or that kind of a rebuild going stale and you know tweaks that are going stale not really having a you know an idea of what to do next I mean so that's, that's kind of what used through. to happen in Florida didn't it um I agree with you like you can't fire him now for the reasons you mentioned and for all of the bad hockey decisions they've made they've never made a decision like this one where you gambled on Mike Babcock's reputation and it busted so fast it's like well, nobody could have predicted it would go this badly I mean obviously. I think I think you could say that the trade for line a was just absolutely ridiculous the, that I mean, was to get to ab- the position that Dubois had you know basically quit on a team at, in the middle of the game was bad enough, still, you know Look at the, the value Dubois still has, and he's asked for another trade. And you know what I mean? Like, Line should have more value than Dubois at this point, but he doesn't because Columbus has given him zero centers to the point that last year they asked Patrick Line to play center. It's, it's incredible okay? like, and ridiculous like, and like wild. His value is nothing that I feel like in a, a year or two, the Panthers are going to be scooping him up for pennies on the dollar because, you know, he's going to be just absolutely depressed in Columbus and they're still going to be nowhere. And they're going to be moving Goudreau and Line and some of their older guys because, you know, they have to add an extra two years to the rebuild. So uh, I don't think that you firing him now makes sense, but look, they're going to try to win this year. They're going to, I said, try I just, you can I'm laugh at whether pull, they're going I wanna, to. I don't I, think I wanna, they're going to win either. I want to see who their first-line center is because last year I just laughed at them trying to go a full NHL season without any real center. Well, the Bruins are also going to try that, but they're a better-run organization than the uh, Blue Jackets are. You got but Bru- I do think you got legitimately Bruce that... And Jack Roslick and Adam Fantilli. Those are your centers. Liam Foudy. Those are your top best four centers at the moment. Ooh, boy. Wolf. Anyway, I, if look, if it goes as badly as we suspect it's going to, I could see a front office house cleaning coming. But I mean, look, you're going to have a lot of young prospects and players to work with when you get there. So it's not as if it's going to be totally hey, they, have to tear it down to the studs. But if it's not they want, if they want to win now, um, I don't know, man. I would I would see what they want to win now. And uh, ask, I mean, they might be in I, the uh, in the in the bucket of we just need to get into the playoffs. We're not like talking Carolina, New Jersey. Yeah, that yeah, one yeah. Year. I know, but I mean, they're gonna need they're gonna need to trade prospects to get somebody if they really want to make the play. Like even just to scrape into the playoffs on a tiebreaker, they're gonna need a goalie. They're gonna need a center. They're or and they're gonna need health from Varinsky. Like, at the very least, just to even have a shot. I do not so disagree where are they getting with you. The goal, where are they getting the goalie and where are they well, getting the I don't think the, the goaltending is awful there, but it's, it's, it's got to prove itself, you know. Um, also, speaking of prospects, this was, this was a story that hit a little close to home, and it definitely caused some buzz before uh, this whole Babcock situation blew up. Uh, Matt Faye Mitchkoff, this, 
This was such a fascinating, again, through the looking glass kind of story, because you're looking at Twitter. By the way, I will never call it what Elon calls it, because if he's going to dead name everybody else on planet Earth, then I'm going to dead name his website. If you're looking at Twitter fair. and you're seeing this story, look, <laughs> it's the fair. fairest. It's the, again, the, you've all learned what dead naming is, everybody. It's Support all- trans people. Very, very easy to call them by their actual name. The anyway. fact that he bought a company just to be a dick and, and inflame a culture war and to get a tax write-off is just ridiculous, and I hate oh, it. Oh, boy. Well, you can buy a company just to get a tax write-off and be quite quiet about it. Uh, before we get to the uh, the Mitchkoff thing, speaking of tax write-offs, uh, congratulations to Messrs. Viola and Sifu, who somehow found a way to be investigated by the SEC, have it announced, and yet it because the Babcock story and Terry Pagula might have been very racist to an NFL reporter. There you go. Dropping on the same day meant nobody other than us noticed that they were charged by the SEC. Congratulations to both of them on their incredible exploits. Incredible exploits in square quotes. On Matvey Mitchkoff, when you're looking at Twitter and you're seeing the context of this story and him being scratched by SKA, naturally people freak out because this plays into that the psyche of, oh, you've drafted a Russian player and this is what happens well, with and, Russian players. And and, and a lot of the TV bad shows now on. are about, you know, a lot of TV shows now are about like subterfuge and political infighting and with the Fedotov, you know, oh, and the yeah, flyers and the Michigan Flyers angle and stuff. There is a showdown between the KHL and the Flyers kind of looming up and that's a narrative a lot of people are pushing so a lot of people, when they see Mishkov sit for three out of four games to start the regular season after being, being the leading goal, the point getter in the preseason, it makes you think of, okay, this is not hockey related. It's actually funny because this is a rare case of I'm actually doing reporting here. I've heard from people in the KHL on this subject matter, and what I heard, I'm not telling you what I believe, I'm telling you what I heard, and I told you this when I when we were talking about this when the story was actually going on, was that there is like skepticism of Mitchkoff as a player right now. I'm not saying the potential is not there, but there were people in the KHL players going, well, "What's all the hype about?" You know, you also have uh, Ivan Demidov, who is a highly touted prospect for this year's draft, who's playing, and I think Scott Wheeler at the Athletic actually wrote an interesting comparison between the two and what the difference is. So, if the perception is that Mitchkoff isn't quite there yet, and he's going to fight for his place, because of course he is, and SKA is paying him quite a bit of money because it's SKA, then you'd go, okay, it makes sense as to why he's going to fight for his spot, even though it seemed evidence that he wasn't going to make the roster and play on a night-in, night-out basis. And you also have to understand the psychology of SKA. This is not some, like, 4D chess intrigue between the KHL and the NHL and Russian players and all of this. This is quite simply, SKA thinks like a lot of NHL teams and they don't want to develop young players because they want to win right now, and that's the only goal they have. I, I, I agree with everything you've said, insofar as I believe that's what the KHL teams sort of think with prospects, and in this case, St. Petersburg... Um, the the greater I, among equals the, when I, it comes I, I to this wanna, sort of stuff. I want to point out some things, though. Uh, one, I don't think Dimitrov is any is that much better. Where I wouldn't expect Dimitrov to get the same sort of treatment 
eventually from this team if this is how they're treating Mitchkov because he's not better offensively than Mitchkov and I don't think the difference is enough that he's going to really be more than just the guy who sits on the bench and plays some power plays and you know plays a couple of minutes but I don't think he's going to get real time or opportunity there either um, he just might dress you know uh, the second thing is Mitchkov has more points or has than all but three forwards. Leipzig, Brendan Leipzig has three. Sergei Tolchinsky has four. And Vladimir Alishrov has four. Mishkov has three points in Sochi already in three games. So I don't, I don't know if winning, if, being, if really wanting to win in the KHL this year means not playing Mishkov. I understand that there's some... You know, you know, they have a guy like Marat Kuznodinov, a guy who I really like, um, and he's really responsible defensively, and they probably want those type of guys in their bottom six. However, you know, you can't deny the skill and his ability to get it done at the KHL and get it done this year so much, you know, better than any than most of the other fours on SKA. I, I understand and that opinion. Just not, they're not having the year that shows that they really care about winning because, um, you know, I, I'm trying to pull up their... Uh, last I saw, they had a losing record. All I'm telling you is, that's what I heard. It's not yeah. what I believe I mean, necessarily. I believe, it's what I heard. And I believe it. I believe, SK, you know, going into the season, they're like, you know, we're not... Mishkov's not really in our plan. We're going to get Alex Galnachuk. Galnachuk you know, doesn't have as many points as Mitchkov in the KHL uh, and everything. I know what they want. I know I I totally agree, but I think they were they're wrong in thinking that, and they're wrong in their assumptions. And this data backs it up. They might be wrong, but I'm just telling you that's what I heard from the KHL. And eventually, as I told you, would happen. He did get loaned. Yeah, and yeah, he and got we, loaned to Sochi, and he's yeah, and that out. was one of the things that I could not understand about the discourse was. There seemed to be so much more discourse because it felt pressured. And it's like, well, it's not going to be, you know, if he doesn't play by, you know, by game five, he's going to get loaned out. So there's not really a pressure. It's, oh, he missed, you know, 20 minutes of total playing time. He probably should have got. Okay. You know, it's not going to kill his career. You know, he's going to actually do better at Sochi where he's going to be the main point of attack. Blah, blah, blah. It's fine. And also, I'm very confident the Flyers know what's going on here. Yeah. Like. I and again, there's no way to think that they made the wrong choice. No, it's way too early to talk about whether they made the, the, the right or wrong draft choice. It's the, from the perspective of even the PR, just solely from the PR and the message it was sending, it was a right. good pick because it showed Flyers fans that, no, they're actually committed to the rebuild. They're actually committed to doing things a different way than they've been doing it. That was good enough on its own let alone yeah. how good Mitchkoff is as a player. And by the time Mitchkoff comes over to North America, the Flyers are going to be in a different position and they're going to have a different kind of plan. And, you know, again, when you draft Russian players, but even when you draft anybody in another league, their goals are not going to be the same yeah. as your goals. That's just the fact. Even but, if you're drafting the best player in the, in the you know, Ontario Hockey League, the London Knights have a different goal than what you're going to have for that player's development. And you, know. you can't stay away from Russia. You no, just you can't. can't. I mean, you look at the, all the best goaltenders in the league right now. 
lot of them are Russian. Well, well, speaking of uh, speaking of another scoop that I have uh, heard from the KHL, I I mentioned this to you a week ago when I said keep an eye on this name for the draft. And in the week ahead, since that happened, look at what happens with the buzz for a certain defenseman and how quickly it picked up. The cat's out of the bag, so you can say the name now. Yes, I, no, it's I, it's Anton Siliev. Everybody has kind of figured it out now. He was ranked ninth in um, uh, Bob um, McKenzie's prospect rankings, but it was really quick to where they're saying, okay, this guy's got what was it, three points in three games? He's six foot seven, so every NHL GM is going to lose their mind, you know, over this a smooth skating six foot seven defenseman with high hockey IQ, and then he keeps piling up the points, and everybody's going, "Oh, oh, okay, we gotta, we gotta talk about this one now." I'm not saying that he's going to be, you know, Max Celebrini at this point, who is like the consensus best prospect at this point in time, but that's a name that people are going to talk about a lot more. And I didn't even have to wait that long for people to start talking about it. It happened in less than a week. Yeah, I like this draft, man. I really do. I think that there's a lot of good forwards at the top and a lot of good defensemen at the top. So if you don't get a 6'7 defenseman, I wouldn't worry. There might be even better defensemen than him down the line. There might not, but there's definitely going to be some, I think, first-pair defensemen in this draft. Um, I only brought it up because so, somebody brought it up to me. And no, but your, I, your draft stuff is, is you know, that's your, that's your lane. And you're very good at it. But when I get told something like that... The, it's he's right up your alley. He's the talk of it right now, and I will say you beat you beat everybody, including me, uh, to it. So you do have some KHL connections, I, I guess, and uh, I hope to use them I, for I, both good I'm and happy to report and uh, do what I can with what little I have because it's not like I'm going into well, beat writing. But... I want you to send a message to the other direction that um, I would take Sergei Fedorov to work for the Panthers down the line. Yes, Whenever true. Ready. <laughs> true. Speaking of the Panthers, this is a Panthers podcast, but if you know us for all the years we've been doing this show, sometimes it takes us a while to get there, but there have been two topics we really wanted to talk about. Yeah, Training we... camp is starting very soon, and right now if you're watching the Prospect Showcase, this is this is great. I love this. Uh, the broadcasters are, are Doug Plagans and uh, Paul Maurice's son, which he already talked about during the run to the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yes. But, like, hey, you actually wanted to hear Paul Maurice's son call hockey games. Congratulations, you've heard. And it's, and it's not just a nepotism thing. He calls for he calls the games for the, Ever, Everblades. the Everblades. yes. And uh, that's where the tournament's taking place. So there's good rhyme and reason why he would be there. So not just straight nepotism. So I like Look, that. I mean, if you haven't realized it, when you're watching um, sports broadcasts, there's nepotism in this business. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> yeah, you know, especially if you watch like any baseball. Oh, if you watch any baseball, I mean, um, if you're going to be watching uh, Ohio State Notre Dame on Saturday, if you're going to be watching a Maryland game, probably called by Chris Collinsworth's son. I'm not just <laughs> look. I, these are all good broadcasters. They they have earned their places in many in, in yes, almost but every like, single case. But like anything in life, some of it is who you know. Yeah, in broadcasting, it's very much yeah. who you know, and uh, that is the last I will say about that because it's, <laughs> it's a frustrating business, man. Anyway, uh, if you've been watching the Panthers prospects, uh, yep. I would. By the way, I'm not going to. I have not watched any of these games, so I can't tell you how Jake is doing. But Jake, if you are listening to this show, maybe you have. Um, I would be happy to talk to you about the broadcasting business at any point in which you would like. 
because I'm always willing to help out other broadcasters because we are all in this together. It is a very dumb business. So when it comes to the Panthers and this training camp, it is last year was a very intriguing training camp for a bunch of reasons that, you know, you have a new coach. You don't exactly know what you're going to get. This is a very intriguing training camp for a bunch of reasons. And the bunch of reasons are, what the heck does this blue line look like? And that's the question we're going to be asking until opening heck, night and probably after opening you, night. You might be able to say, what does this right side look like if you're talking up and down the ice? Uh, it, you know, um, it, it's there's a lot of questions for a team that's really going to be focused on continuity um, and keeping the pressure that they've had, uh, you know, that they were able to apply to other teams basically the second half all the way through the playoffs until the cup final run or until the cup final round. Um, so this is, this is definitely weird. You're right. I mean, right now there is no NHL level right handed defenseman. The, you know, you have Ekblad, you have Montour, they're injured. They're not going to be starting the season. So right now you don't have a right handed shot uh, starting. You have Fitzgerald, you know, who you can kind of pencil in, who's a right-handed shot. And then after that, it's Mike Benning and Santo Kanunen, and th- and that's it. Um, you have Mahor, who can play on the right side. You have Kulikov, who can play on the right side. I bet you some other defensemen can play on the right side. We'll probably see Riley or any of the guys on the bubble on the right side to give them more opportunity to make the team whether it's just in practice and going through drills or in uh, scrimmages in the games, the exhibition games. But, I mean, that is, you are 100% right. Who the hell is playing on the right side of the defense? Who's playing with who? How is a coach like Paul Maurice, who is one of the most notorious right shot plays on the right side, left shot plays on the left shot type of get- coach. Uh, I mean, who, who among us didn't complain out? about handedness on every single podcast last year? Oh, that definitely yeah. couldn't have been us. Right, right. So, I mean, it's going to be crazy. If you look at it, I mean, depending on how you feel about Fitzgerald and Riley, there's like five defensemen I think are locks. You know, obviously Ekblad and Montour are injured, so we're not talking about them. Otherwise, they would be locks. But you got Forsling, you got Mohora, you got Ekman Larson, you got Mikola, and I'm going to say Kulikov's pretty much going to make it just on the, like, just because he's a vet. They signed him to a deal a couple months ago, and he plays the right-hand side, and that's where they need somebody in the immediate future. So I don't think he's getting waived. Uh, so there's your five. You think that they're that you need six to play, and you think they they can probably have seven or eight, eight at most probably roster. They have no cap issues when it comes to carrying a full roster this year, uh, for the reasons we talked about on our last show in July. Because either way, whether Spencer Knight goes down to the a, uh, to the AHL, whether they send Stolars down, they're going to get a million dollars in cap relief. To say nothing of if they put Ekblad and Montour on LTI, which they still could do. They don't have to put them on LTI. They'd still have more than enough room to carry 13-8 and eight or 14-7, and seven, depending on what they want to do. So yeah. that is not going to be a problem this year. They have managed the cap in that regard quite well. So we're not going to be seeing the nonsense we saw at the start of last year where they're playing down a forward yeah. or playing down a defenseman because they're too close to the cap. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, they could be real boring. I mean, this is a team that wants to win the Stanley Cup this season. 
They tasted it. They want to go back for more. They're going to be playing with a chip on their shoulder, and they're going to have the confidence that we, if we get into the playoffs, if we have a good you know, stretch run to finish the regular season and we're healthy, we're going to be a team to reckon with. We're going to be a team that other teams do not want to play. And because of that, they might just make it real boring and pick Fitzgerald, Riley, and that's it. And that's your decor. Uh, but let's pretend that they're not going to be boring. Um, there's a lot of guys who, you know, are going to be challenging for two or three spots. There's Mike Riley, who we, who, who we said, who they brought in, a guy who's, you know, oh, since he's left college, has been a bubble player, always fighting for spots and time in the NHL, doing pretty well in the AHL. Uh, and then you have guys like Carlson and Kierstead who you know have been bubble players before and are getting to the point where, um, you know, it's really shit or get off the pot. Sort of Basically, for, yes. For, I mean, Carlson, because he's going to be frustrated, he's not going to want to come back or he's going to ask for a trade because he's played, he played at an AHL all-star level all through last season, all through the playoffs. And he probably could have made a difference. Well, I mean, who among us wasn't calling for Lucas Carlson to play most of last year? Again, couldn't have been us. It united the whole social fandom of The two things that Panthers fans can agree on. Anton Lundell was a really good draft pick, and we want to see Lucas Carlson. Well, and Tom Rowe's not welcome back. Uh, Other than that, yes. (laughs) You know, so you have those guys. And then you have some older veteran players in 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 uh, Shalin and Bol- Bolinskis. Oh yeah, so that's gonna that's gonna tie up my tongue. I'm looking at it and I still have to slow myself down to butcher it. Uh, you know those guys are you know north of 24, 25. They've played professional hockey before. You know Shalin uh, in Europe and then in the AHL last year, so he's a little more familiar. Uh, and then Bolinskis was brought over assigned uh, uh, last year and is coming over for the first time now uh, with Florida. I believe he came out, he was in the HL check league. Yeah. But I believe he was played in the HL for the sharks or, or the stars or somebody before hmm. going back. We well, can I'm going to look that up. I can look that uh, up right now, actually. Okay. I'll keep, I'll keep vamping that. Well, you don't have to vamp too long. Uh, he has played uh, according to cap friendly. Who knows what they're talking about? I do not see anything here other than uh, he played, obviously, when Riga was in the KHL. He's played for Latvia internationally, uh, and he's played the Czech. He has not played in any North American hockey. All right, so he'll be a first time. So, you know, who knows how how much in the fight he is. But, you know, as a veteran, as somebody who's played professionally, you can't count him out. I think he was the MVP of the Czech League, too. So Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and then, of course, you have, you know, and all those guys we mentioned are all left-handers so far. Uh, so that's one, two, three, four, five left-handers. I'm going to finish with John Ludwig, uh, who is another left-hander and somebody I think very highly of when it comes to Florida defensive prospects. Uh, he's the type of guy who, on the left-hand side, can play more of a shutdown role is going to be good at stopping transition, defending the blue lines. Uh, you know, I don't know what his point, you know, his upside is, but he can move the puck and he can play 
and get involved off the cycle from the blue line. He's not stationary on the blue line. He's not an old school guy. He likes to hit, you know, so everybody's going to like him. Uh, maybe, I, I think, you know, maybe he can challenge deep in the camp for it, but I think ultimately he's going to be AHL because there's a lot of veterans. There's a lot of guys on the left-hand side with more NHL experience, and this is a team where that still matters. Or I, I, I shouldn't say still matters. It finally matters for the Panthers, yeah. right? Yeah, um, but it's. I think that the early preseason games are really a test of, like, what do they think? Like, the only... Th- like, you kind of know who the three defensemen are on the left. It's going to be Forsling, Ekman, Larson, and Mikola to start the year. But you don't know what the right side's going to look like. As you say, Mahura and Kulikov yeah. are easy plug-and-play probably on the right for now. Well, unless, unless you know, you get through those early exhibition games and they can't find chemistry with anybody on the left, you know? Like, that could happen. Yeah, I- of course it could. And But, like, it's going to be incumbent on them experimenting, like... They have an interesting position, and I want to run this by you because it's something I'm thinking about with Ekblad and Montour out for who knows how long, probably into November at least. Yeah, let's go. I'd say December, but let's just yeah, let's just say December. For argument's sake, Thanksgiving, just as a random benchmark. I don't know. Turkey Day, god damn it. Yes. Here's my thing about the Panthers to start this season. They actually have a pretty easy schedule in terms of just the way it's all you know, paced out. They don't have any crazy back-to-backs. They're not playing a ton of crazy great teams. They could easily, like, they didn't start terribly last year. When it went wrong was, like, mid-November, December. They They were perfectly fine to start the year. If they get off to a fast start, and they play really well to start, a la, you know, 21-22, when they had that, you know, eight-game winning streak to start the season and made the playoffs in October pretty much, then they don't have to worry about rushing back Ekblad and Montour. They can say, take however long you need to recover. We need you in April. We don't need you now. So, so do you Sounds plan so to good. try to like get off to a really hot start, like gun it and go for it, and then you ease off after that because then you don't have to rush your defenseman back? And that would mean you're going to probably take the safe option with your defensive choices. Like It's not bad. Who they have they just yeah, have yeah. like no top end but it's a lot of depth or are you going to spend the early part of the year experimenting and tweaking with it in actual games as opposed to you know setting it and forgetting it which means you might then start a little bit more sluggish and at that point you start to wonder okay when is the earliest conceivable point in which we can get Ekblad and Montour back and do you rush them back a little bit sooner than you'd ideally want them to be back when they're 100%, you know, lock, stock, and yeah. barrel? That sort of thing. I mean, thing. it's a great point. Uh, and the other point I want to make here is this. And they're not thinking about this, but it's something we can think about from our seat at the table, from our perspective, is the cup final run obviously buys them a ton of goodwill. Like, that's going to live long in everybody's memory. But how long does the goodwill last if you get off to a iffy start? Because the East is going to be really competitive this year. There are a lot of teams yeah, yeah. that are gunning for those spots. It's well, not like a couple of years ago when we knew who the eight teams were in November or last year when it was pretty obvious who at least six of them were. You know, I think there's only three guaranteed playoff teams in the Eastern Conference heading into the season. The Panthers are not one of them. So... That is a really interesting decision they have to make. Do you try to set it and forget it, start fast, and then you know play the waiting game with your two best defensemen, 
so that they can be truly healthy when you need them? Or are you going to, you know, do a little bad scientist tweaking to start the year, risk starting a little slowly when you know it's going to be uber competitive? It's an interesting decision because whatever they choose to do, I still think this is a playoff team. I think this is a 70-30 playoff team at this point, which is probably the best you can do at this point, considering the, you know, Ekblad and Montour are injured. But it's a really interesting path that they could choose to go down. And I don't know which path they're going to take. I honestly don't have I don't, an answer. I don't know if it's it's that simple. I mean, I think it is more... I think that Maurice, especially going into his second year versus first year, is going to be more open to the idea he can win multiple ways with this team. And I don't think he's going to be as set and forget either out the gun or over the course of the year as he was last year. And I think the main reason for that, you know, besides the confidence, is just roster construction. They're, for him to set and forget, that he that requires two left-handers to play the right side and not have any fumbles, foibles, or give any doubts. Um, and to, to really be healthy... Um, on the defense, and then having a clear defender jump out for that last spot on the right side, whether that's Fitzgerald or a guy like Kanunen, who I'm really high on. It's not just finish, finish bias. He was one of the best prospects on the Florida through these three games on the prospect tournament. He's played pro in Finland. He's played in the AHL and was one of the best defensemen on the checkers last year, especially of the younger uh, guys, you know, not Carlson and some of these other guys, you know, who are not, I wouldn't call prospects, you know, and it's, it's his time to kind of make or break. And I think he should get NHL games at some point this year, being an actual right hand shot, being able to play on the penalty kill power play in, in the AHL, I think sh- says a little bit about him and, you know, just his ability to kind of play in all three zones. He's a calm poised defender, so I don't think he's really going to show the nerves of, of when he gets called up. Uh, I think he's a safe one over a guy like Benning, who maybe has more upside down the road. But this is his first year pro. Uh, he's, as we saw, if you watch the prospect tournament, he's definitely hit or miss defensively. Uh, and sometimes he, you know, he misses the net on an offensive chance high and wide. And then he goes behind the net, circles behind the net, and it's an odd man rush the other way. And it's like, that's, you know, there's some things where it's like he let him st- stay with the checkers, let him, you know, develop more so you get you get it. I don't know if he's going to be ready for this team that really can't afford guys making mistakes in the D end when you have guys on the offhand side, when you have Bobrovsky uh, trying to maintain his his good play and you have either Knight trying to find it again or a guy like Stolar is trying to get familiar and trying to uh, stay up and, and find his stride on a new team. It, it, it took us a, an hour eight ish to get to uh, to get to Spencer Knight, but if you haven't read uh, Ken Campbell at the Hockey News uh, talking with Spencer Knight about having like really terrible OCD, I cannot imagine how bad that was uh, for him to deal yes. with. I, I, I can imagine. I mean, not at a professional level, but I, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I had to stop playing hockey because of OCD. Um, 
in a playoff run for my high school team and, uh, you know, to, to get treatment and to get better. And it's not fun. Uh, you know, and there's people who read the articles and just think, oh, it was just hand washing and thinking he's going to get. No, it, it that's, goes that's an anecdote to set you know, the stage for yeah, everything that, else that comes later. And that and, and to be honest, a lot of what people with OCD or other conditions usually share is only the tip of the iceberg because, you know, they want it. They don't want to come off. You know, they they're still you know, there's a lot of stigma, so you're still protective of your image and everything, and only. And I don't know. think, and I don't think that it's the not goal when you talk about this, apologies for interrupting, is for you to be pitied. You know what I mean? Yes, or to bear all. That's more for private therapy and for family and friends and things like that. You know, we don't, as fans, you know, what we got from the interview is more than you know what's owed to us. So I'm not. You know, and obviously, I I hope that he does find his potential, find his ceiling. Is one of the I best. I mean, it makes you want to root league. for him more because you know what he went through. It does, yeah. And, and so when we get know. to that, but the goal you know, I, yeah. in a second, I as, as again, and I'll say it again, just you know, it doesn't really matter because it's over with. But I, I, I don't think this changes my feelings on the the Preakness or Belmont or whatever. Belmont, it was the Belmont. Yeah, I don't think it changes because in the we, same we, situation... We hashed that one out in June. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you know, going back I to it. I was obsessing about hockey and, you know, I wasn't, you know, I... The, you know, that's just a difference of opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it's not something I hold like anyone, especially a younger, younger adult uh, accountable for or anything. So, but good luck. I hope... I I think I think he should start in the AHL. That's I agree with you. 100%. My preference. I think you give him ten to fifteen starts in the I AHL. I don't know the contractual number that he can go before he needs waivers. Whatever that number is in the AHL, give him that because he's been away from hockey for, you know, he he was at you know the the Panthers prospect camp whatever it is. He's gonna play in the preseason obviously, but you gotta get him rhythm. And he's not going to get rhythm with the way the Panthers' schedule works at the start of the season. They signed Stolarz for this reason. I think that's really obvious. You've got a guy who can play in the AHL and you can send him down without waivers. You might as well do it yeah. for as long as you possibly can. And the variable amount covers Stolarz. So, you know, you're, you're not affecting... It's, you know, whether you have Stolarz in the AHL and Knight in the NHL. No, there's no cap implications either yeah. way. The like, same amount is variable. Ca- yeah, it's it's equal. It's going to be mm. the same. Like they they th- knew exactly no what they were doing when they signed Stolarz to that contract. Yeah, and, and I again, you get Stolarz over a guy like Line because going into the year, you know you might not get Knight for all of the year. And you don't know, you don't want to put pressure on him to have to be there all the time and to step up. You get a guy like Stolarz who has more of a track record at the NHL than Lyon and is a similar type of goalie as Lyon, and I think you're you're fine. Um, you know, I think you give Lyon 10 to 15, I mean, not Lyon, uh, Knight, 10 to 50 games in the AHL. You see how it goes. But, you know, if he has to stay down in the AHL for a while, he has to stay down in the AHL for a while. You know, um, I don't know how Weber and uh, Guzda will feel about it, but you, you figure it out. You, you deal with it because obviously Spencer Knight's the priority because he is, uh, after Anton Lundell, 
your second most important piece of the next wave. Barkov, you have to Barkov and Ekblad and you know Kachuk. These guys are young, but you have to think about the next wave coming. Uh, because if this is a franchise that wants to win multiple cups and and continue beyond just one core, uh, they have to you know start finding these guys and keeping their higher end guys and making the guys they already drafted pan out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I. I, I don't know how they're going to make it work, but that's why you have a department of excellence, goaltending excellence or whatever. That's why they have five or six guys to figure it out. Well, this is why they like this is their, their they have a strategy. They draft a goalie in every single draft. Like we we know this is what they do. So like they have a plan, you know, they tried a couple years ago to like do the two on one off for the goaltenders. Like they have to obviously adapt and change because the plan is going to change. People 20. are going to deal with whatever it is they're dealing with. But so, you know, if Spencer Knight's playing a good chunk of AHL games to start the year, that's perfectly acceptable. You know, at some point they're going to probably call him up if they lose, you know, on Stolars on waivers for some reason. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Like, they're going to be okay. They have enough built-in depth in the systems where it's not going to kill them. If, you know, one of them gets injured or one of them goes lost on waivers or something like that. Yeah. So for for Knight, he's got 21 NHL games left before. Oh, he's so he's got out. a long so, way to go. So the whole thing is, but I mean, to me, this is like he's already making an NHL, like uh, everyday NHL goalie, like almost like starting goalie salary. Yes. This year. By next year, he has to be an everyday goalie. He, we, you cannot be, you cannot be going into the year worrying about Spencer Knight, and if so, then you have to start planning that he's not going to be your starter after Bobrovsky, because you know, get 21 games, he's probably hitting that sometime next year or this year. Um, well, well, if you had an ideal world, like what would be your breakdown of how many games you want Bobrovsky to start Stolar? Like, I don't know if that makes any point to talk about this, but like, what would be I, your ideal if you could if ideal, you could script it? If I could script it, if script it, Knight is in the AHL like all year. He's missed so much hockey because of COVID, because of the assistance program, because in college they don't play as much as junior teams. You know, the you know, he's just missed a lot of hockey. He has not played as many as much hockey as I want him to. I would re- want him to be a starting goalie in the AHL for months, months, and see how that goes. If he's dominating and goalie of the month like twice or something, yeah, pull him back up. But when he comes back up, I don't want him going back down ever again. You got that's how you have to a- act. So. You know he's got to be ready to jump into NHL action when he when he plays, and to me, I want to see him do months because uh, he needs those games. He needs those games, I think. And I'm fine with Solars playing the second of a back to back and different and you know games against teams that you should win and things to give Bob a rest. But this is one of the, probably the last years of Bob that you get to really lean on his body before it starts to break down more and more. So I, I would take it. So let's look at, again, hypo, hypothetically, let's look at the schedule to start the season and, and focus on that. For instance, like you start with that road trip, Minnesota, Winnipeg, New Jersey. He's prob- Bob's probably playing all of those. 
You then get Toronto at home. He's definitely playing that one. But then it's Vancouver and San Jose. You can play to back up in one of those, right? Yeah. They both yeah. aren't very most good. Likely, most likely Stolars gets San Jose. Yeah. And then you've and got you... the Kraken, but that's after a three-day break. And then you go to Boston. That's another one that Bob's probably going to play. Then you got Detroit. The Panthers beat the Red Wings no matter what. Chicago, Columbus at home. Then at Washington, home against Carolina, Chicago again. Their yeah. first back-to-back like, is Kings Ducks. So yeah. you're going to be able to really massage it and, and get, like... And get Stolarz the Ducks. Yeah, you could give Stolarz the Ducks yeah. and the Sharks. It doesn't really matter, like, because they're both you give bad. Him those Chicago, there's two Chicago games. He at least gets one, if not both. Uh, there was a Columbus game in there. He yep. could get one of those. I mean, but, like, that's what hopefully they do. Um, but, you know, you just give Bobrovsky, like, you know, three or... At, you know, I would say four out of every five games, maybe, but at least three out of every five games. Yeah, pace him because you we know him. you don't need impeccably elite Bobrovsky in November. But if you get it in April, which we saw what happened when they got it in April and May, the Panthers' ability to go really deep in the playoffs is there because we learned the lesson that any goalie can get hot in the playoffs. We talked about this at the time. Like, Mike, you know, Brian Boucher, Michael Layton, you know, Jordan Bennington, Cam Ward, anybody can get hot in the playoffs. But if you've got a truly elite goalie with that level of talent that can get hot in the playoffs, yeah. all bets are off. And yeah, that's we'll basically, see. you don't want to bank on it, but that's something that the Panthers can, if Bobrovsky is fresh and ready like he was last year, uh, again, all bets are off because that's possible. That is in the realm of, yeah, I know he's 35. He could His body could break down. But we know it's in the realm of possibility. And I'm almost 100% confident that Roberto Luongo is on top of all of this. Like, Leo Luongo is on top of this. Francois Lair is on top of this. They have the goalie department for a reason. So that's really what you're trying to bank on. But Stolarz is a perfectly cromulent backup goaltender. You know he's played in the NHL a lot. He played on Anaheim, and they stunk. The Panthers are a lot better than that. So... You know that that and the way the schedule plays out really does yeah. help the goaltending too. Finally, so I, this is one easier. of the this is one of the best schedules Florida's had in a decade plus. So. Oh, it's it, there's not a ton of crazy back to backs. There's not a crazy stretch like they had. You know, like for a couple of years they'd have such a road heavy start, and then you'd have a a month long stretch where they don't leave the state of Florida, and you're just you're chasing all the time, like they had last year. Like this year, they don't have that. Uh, by the way, on a national television scale, uh, you, I've talked about this, but how about my favorite fact? The Panthers' last network television game was, I believe, it was like April 1998. It was against the Penguins on Fox. Game was called by, I believe, Kenny Albert, and I have to look that up. Um, but in March, they will actually be playing their first network television game in nearly 26 years. It's at the Rangers, because of course it is. They're also playing <laughs> at the Bruins. But this yeah. is the first time the Panthers have... Last year, they went to the Stanley Cup Final and didn't play a network television game, because of course, it was the first Stanley Cup Final all on cable in 30 years. It is the first time they are playing on network television since... Hold on just one second before I get to the answer to this question. I had looked it up before and completely forgot about it. It is the first time they are playing on network television since Saturday, April 11th. 1998 on Fox, called by Kenny Albert and Terry Crisp. There you go. Nice. Good find. That Speaking of idiot. networks, uh, I usually complain that I don't get the NHL network. 
Well, I found out a good workaround for anybody with the Roku. The Roku channel has the NHL network for free. You don't have to pay anything or give a credit card or anything like that. How about that? Just on the NH, just on the uh, Roku channel live TV guide. Really cool. Um, yep, that's good Fantastic. for everybody involved. So that and means, it's not that's illegal, fine. so that's that's even better. Uh, uh, you know, you know, with the Panthers when they get some of these broad cast games they're on nhl network sometimes so i can't watch at all period yeah. live on delay you know it's, you know, uh, it's you, know just, you know what's really funny about the, the national pirate. tv schedule um it's very backloaded it's not like they front loaded all the yeah. games and they're like oh we expect this team to be bad there's a lot of them at the end of the year uh but my other favorite one bizarre both the vegas games are not on national tv like the the first vegas game is the day but like the last game before christmas which Congrats if you could get to that game. That game is going to be a madhouse. And then the game in Vegas is early January, so it doesn't really fit from a national TV perspective. But, yeah, both of those games aren't on, on national TV. That's a little bit strange. Uh, although I do like – they do get your four TNT games. They get to play the Bruins on TNT, which is nice. You know, you get to – they have 12 national TV games. It's more than Tampa has. That has never happened before. The same amount as Philadelphia, though. Yes. I mean, the Flyers obviously draw better than the Panthers do, but the Panthers having the amount of national TV games they deserve, the first time that has ever happened. This year, there's a decent chance they are near, are a couple spots below where you would think they would be with TV ratings. Mm, I mean, I I, I, I know that their local ratings have obviously gone way up recently. Um, I, I think... I think that there's people more willing to, but once the once the season gets started and the team's bad, it's gonna dip, drop, and probably not come back back up this year. There's gonna be a few games like the Recce Hall of Fame night. Congratulations for him being named into the Hall of Fame, but you're a Pittsburgh Penguin Stanley Cup winner. Well, we should also congratulate Brian Boucher as the uh, new color analyst full time. Oh yeah, yeah. I that was a saw that happening. Well, it's the it's the Flyers. I wonder, they have... I wonder if Comcast uh, owns. You know, well, no, he's working for TNT that. now. He moved to TNT, left ESPN, so he's going to be working with uh, Kenny Albert and Eddie Olchek. Yeah, this is new again. Um, on the Panthers well, subject to end to end this podcast, we're going to have well, so we have much to more. Finish, we have to finish talking about the forwards. We yes, I was going about to say the forwards, the goalies. Yeah, okay. So well, forwards. You and I were talking about this, I think a little in July, but we were also talking about this a couple, you know, couple days ago, a couple weeks ago. Do you think they're going to run out basically the same forward group that they had in the playoffs just because you know your defense is chaos, right? You well, want to start I, with the forward groups, everybody playing with people they know already. I don't, I mean... I, I think I don't know what the first line is going to be because you know the way it finished was not the way it was because of some injuries like lost training and things like that. But I do think they start the season with uh, Cousins, Bennett, uh, Kachuk as a line. Um, I think a big part of it is going to be balancing the forward lines so you have better players out there who can retain possession on the other side of the red line to make sure that the defense is not always pressured and you always have someone good enough who can kind of just like force a puck out of the zone and get a line change when needed um, all, all the way down the lineup because as you're rotating the 3D pairs through, 
you're going to get mixed and matched with all the different lines. I, I also think that's why they're going to be pretty strong through the center. Uh, and I think that you might even see a guy like Lawrence move to the wing. So Lewastrainen maybe starts the year as the fourth line center. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens. So you always have a responsible center on the ice who can basically drop back and play D if needed, who's going to be able to go into the corners first, start a breakout, et cetera. We saw how good Bennett was able to adjust to that uh, usage that Maurice kind of asks of his center defensively. I don't know if they maybe want to start Lorenz with that um and you know maybe have a guy like cousins or law strain and take that 4c role because they 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 know what to do and what's expected of them right away um i think we know to start the year three you've always talked about you start your lines with pairs like yeah. we know three pairs we know that barkoff's gonna play with verhage we assume bennett's gonna play with kachuk it seems reasonable to see that lundell and reinhardt are gonna play together to start the year and then yeah. you kind of plug and play from there. You figure out, okay, do we want to put, you know, Evan Rodriguez up on the top line? Because you know he can play with anybody. And that's as seamless as it's going to get. Because you know anybody who plays with Barkov is going to be pretty good. But Rodriguez already knows. He's played with Nathan McKinnon. He's played with Sidney Crosby. That's a that's kind of a plug and play. You know, do you put Cousins with Bennett and Kachuk? Because you already know they've got the chemistry. Now, my question with this is, is that a regular season line? You know how good it is in the playoffs because it was a wrecking ball. But how good is that as a regular season line? Well, maybe it's something that maybe that's something they only go back to when they maybe maybe when Denisenko slots in, or maybe uh, it's that kind it gives, of thing the break glass in case of emergency yeah. chasing or, a game. We need to put these guys yeah. together. But I mean, I I think that you might see different looks. I mean, like okay, so left wing that's pretty stuffed. I mean, Rodriguez is a left winger. If by preference he plays basically every position. Uh, so maybe he slots over, but you have Verhage, Rodriguez, Lawstraining, Cousins, and Lomberg. So Rod- Rodriguez, Lawstraining, Cousins all can play center. Rodriguez can also play right wing. Uh, so, you know, we'll, that's going to be, you know, Maurice's job to figure out how that goes. Uh, but the right wing, I mean, you got Kachuk and you got Reinhardt, you got Stenlin, you know. But is Stenlin an everyday player? We don't know, you know. Like, and if he is, maybe it's only it's the fourth line. So, I mean, and then you got Richie again. Even if he signs off his PDO, is he anything outside of a fourth line body or the bot, the guy who sits on the bench so Sam Muscovich doesn't have to, um, you know, things like that. But I'd be really interested if, you know, I think Dennis Sanko ha- has a great chance to make the team, and if he doesn't. I have a feeling someone will take him on waivers or they'll encourage a team to take him on waivers just because what's the point? You will, you'll get nothing. If they waive him again, you'll probably get nothing for him. Yeah. Um, um, he's the most intriguing forward at camp because for everybody else, it's pretty it's pretty known what you're going to see. But, but if, he, him, if, he, if he plays, he's not playing on the fourth line, which means he's playing on the third line, likely, which means you're going to want to... Th- a stronger third line to make sure that any any issues or any gaps left by him adjusting or you know finding his his scoring or something is is covered. So maybe you have Rodriguez and and Lundell or Reinhardt Lundell and Denisenko or something like that. I I, I think uh, the good thing the about this line. Panthers team, as you said, is they are so stacked up the middle 
that they can cover for a lot of deficiencies with the blue line because you know who three of them are automatically. And you've got guys that clearly the coaching staffs in Los Duran and and Cousins that they trust to play center on a fourth-line role. And so they're really deep at that position. And the fact that they are means that you're already building from a solid foundation anyway. And it's just adding on top of it. But yeah, my thought I mean, was... To, to go with the solid foundation, I mean, you're talking about they have 12 forwards who are locks on their team. So if the, you just slide Rodriguez over to the right wing, you have twelve. You have four lines of forwards who are going to play NHL minutes. And that you know Maurice wants to give NHL minutes too because they either signed him this year or he's already used them a lot last year. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the fight and, you know, the guys fighting for a spot, if they're fighting for, you know, 13th and 14th forwards or if they're actually fighting for a roster spot. I think, that, interesting. I think that there are 10, like Cousins is probably the last every night guy. After that, when you get to Lorenz and Stenland and even Lomberg's probably not an every night guy at this point. Like, he's a guy who I think that he'll get healthy scratch some nights. Like, you've got yeah, 10... Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, 10... Well, you would like to see that because the that kind of stuff that Ryan Lomberg does, you don't necessarily need well, it for a Tuesday night you, game against Arizona. Well, point blank period, you want to rotate guys in and out. That's something we've advocated. Well, yes, with, true. With defensemen, with wingers, with, you know... You, you want to make sure that guys have reps so when... You know, they have to play every day. It's it's an easier yes. So, But you agree, I think, with me that there's probably yeah. 10 every night forwards that are locks. And then yeah, you've got... Yeah, but, but those two guys that are outside the 10 are the two that were just signed in Lorenz and Stanley. I don't think that they are or, okay, every okay, Lomberg, night. I don't think Lomberg they're every night players because they weren't in their previous stops. So yeah. I think that, you know... So, so, then, so then you got... You got um, Who's fighting for spots? You got. We'll, we'll just give Dalpy. We'll just give him the benefit of the doubt. Say he's fighting for a spot. I do not think he is. But he's a, He's a he's a vet who Maurice has played in the playoffs, so you can't discount it. Yes. Uh, but then you obviously have Richie who signed the PTO. You have Denisenko and Shemoskevich. Obviously, those guys have. You know, Richie, Denisenko, Shemoskevich. You probably say have the three best shots. To, to win a spot. One, because you're bringing a guy on a PTO for a targeted reason. Uh, and Denisenko and Samuskevich are the top prospects. And frankly, I like all the guys battling, the guys with the best skill sets. Mm. Um, so you got to give them a good look. And then I would say the second, you have guys who are really interesting, but maybe are more call-ups throughout the year than making a team out of training camp. And that's Rasmus Asplund. And Ryan McAllister. Uh, Rasmus Asplund, if you don't remember, like, when he played in Buffalo, like, the goal for when Asplund was on the ice was for absolutely nothing to happen. <laughs> like, yeah. literally just skate around in circles because nobody's going to the goal, nobody's going to be creating chances, nothing. If you're talking about a 13th or 14th forward, though, a guy with NHL experience who can play wing, can play center, and does not give up any chances is something a veteran coach and a team that wants to win every game uh, that, that is appealing to That was to the that. goal with Lorenz and Stenland, yeah. too. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. But they, have, but they also fill the big bodies. 
yes. uh, quotient, whereas Flynn doesn't. Uh, McAllister also doesn't fit the big bodies. You, you're taking a liking to him, I've well, seen. I mean, you got to just look at the numbers. You got you to gotta watch him play. And there's, I, I don't know if he's going to be an everyday NHLer, but I think he has the skill set and his numbers to date show that he will be playing NHL games. If given the opportunity, you know, as long as he there's a team that, you know, isn't backlogged. And I don't think Florida is so good with prospects and guys coming up and, no. and guys that they're backlogged. He can play center, he can play wing, but I mean, he had, I mean, it's the B, it's not the BCHL, the AJ for the Brooks Bandits. He had, you know, like 140 points or 130 some points one year. He played one year at Western Michigan. He was over a point per game. He gets signed. You know, he's 21 this year. He's played uh, like five or, you know, he's played seven games for the Checkers and has like seven points or something. Uh, you know, he played, you know, in the playoffs for the Checkers last year and I think had two points in three games, a goal and an assist. I, I, I watched one of his Checkers playoff games. He did not look out of place. In fact, he looked like he dictated pace, uh, which is something you'd like to see for someone new in the, in in the league and then you know he was one of the best he was probably the third or fourth best forward in this prospect showcase uh and he was better than some guys i was not expecting him to be better than um so yeah i think there's reason to think that he fights for nhl games at some point uh you know and then we said dalpy but he's probably that third level and then alex true a guy that i think was in the kraken uh, organization. He was in San Jose's as well. Yeah, uh, he's a guy who I like, and he fills that kind of that big body, you know, bottom of the lineup, you know, just responsible. He's not a liability. He has some decent hands. He can make passes. He knows when to move a puck and when to shoot a puck and that kind of stuff. But you know, he's he's not going to be anything more than than a guy who gets called up to play fourth line or something. Wow. I think when that's, I look that's, at this group of, wrong with that. I like I like the signing of True. Yeah, I remember I think saying that, that they have built a good depth in the organization. They're a little bit smarter with the depth they've got in the organization now. And I think what we both hope for, even though I don't know if it's necessarily possible because this team doesn't have that level of ceiling, is don't you want this to be the kind of team that when we get to March, it's pretty evident they're making the playoffs. And so I mean, I don't think it will ever happen, but, like, you want that team who is pretty solidly in the playoffs, doesn't matter where they finish at this point, you know you can give Barkoff and Kachuk and guys like that, rotate them in and out, give them some nights off so they're ready right. for April yeah. and ready for May, and then you have guys you can get in there and you trust so the level doesn't drop. Like, that's, I think, what the goal for everybody should be, right? Is that... You're, you're not scratching for your lives to the playoffs and expending all this energy. You're pretty solidly in. That means some nights you can take give these guys a night off, and then you plug in somebody, hopefully Dennis Anko's an every-night player by that point, but you plug in some of these guys and be like, oh, okay, we're not worried about you know losing consistency, losing our momentum, losing our style, because we're putting these guys in for the one or two nights we're giving Sasha a break. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's that's if you're in that position in March, then then you're in great shape for the playoffs because you don't want to come in not just like the desperation, but also you don't want those guys nicked up, you know? Yeah. Like 
whatever you want to say about Matthew Kachuk, like, I mean, it's insane that he played through a broken sternum in the Stanley Cup final. Like, that's bananas. But, like, there are going to be nights where you're like, okay, Matt, it's okay, take a break. We know what we need you for. You know, Alexander Barkov, you don't want him injured because he's obviously had times when he's been out injured. But I don't want to overtax him because we saw what was going on in the playoffs, right? I mean, he was absolutely unreal. I want you want that Barkov in the playoffs, right? Where yeah, he's I'm doing so all they, the Barkov things. I'm so mad that they removed credit for like two points. Oh yeah, no, he deserved. But every it's, it's so annoying. Point. He, anyway, uh, again, he wasn't their best yeah. player in the playoffs, but that he was, was their so, best center. He, he certainly was, but he was that was the best level of bar. You know and, the interesting thing about um, we'll we'll wrap this up shortly. But like Matthew Kachuk was on, I think it was the Cam and Strick podcast, and he was talking about um, you know, his experiences, and I think Barkov did that uh, the European Players Tour, and I remember this time last year going. Is Matthew Kachuk going to bring something out of Alexander Barkov we haven't seen before? You know, add something to his game because he's playing with such a different kind of player. And what turned out to happen was Alexander Barkov was able to be more of himself because Matthew Kachuk took control of the things that, you know, Barkov isn't necessarily, not only say not comfortable with, but that's in his wheelhouse, right? Like, Alexander Barkov's the captain. He sets the tone, but we know what Barkov is. When he talks, he's either saying something really important or saying something funny. We all know that. Like, that's well-established at this point. And Matthew Kachuk can take on the public-facing role because, you know, he's telegenic. He's got a really outgoing personality. He embraces that role. So, you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 that's the dynamic that played out. And that's the dynamic that made Barkov better. Like, he was so good in the playoffs because Matthew Kachuk was so much the center of attention that it allowed Alexander Barkov to do all the things that he loves to do and he's extremely good at. And it's incredible to think it's been 10 years of him in the NHL now because he's still only 28. Like, that's not nothing. But, like, there's still more for him to give, even. And that's, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. So I, I know I made that observation last year. But I think that observation is also kind of important when you look at, like, the dressing room and everything. Like, they're, they're, like all of the things about their dressing room that they said were true were actually true. And Barkov is such a huge part of that, you know. And I, I, it's always something we say, appreciate him because he's one of the best players in the league. And now that Bergeron's retired, he made the joke about his face-off percentage going up. But, like... This is for him for to be that, you know, the the truly dominant two-way center in the league. I, I think he already was, but... His personality I, I means he was deferential. A, I think that Bergeron had a few reputation trophies at the end of his career. Uh, not saying anything too bad about him, but I think there's a little more myth than success with the Patrice Bergeron career. Maybe I just don't like the Bruins, but that's probably uh, true. You know, I think I just I can't say anything bad about Barkov. I can only say the greatest things about him. He is like a mix between, you know, he's like a Datsuk Fedorov type of player, uh, more Datsuk than Fedorov, obviously. But you know, I, I just they're just my favorite types of, of players. Um, and I know that some people are gonna be like, "What about Justin Sordif?" Uh, Over oh, the forwards, for, yeah competing for the forward spot. I don't see it, to be honest with you. I think he's the kind of guy who benefits from 
being a top AHL guy for another year. He's still young. Um, I still want him playing center. I want, you know, I want to push him. I wanted to see, you know, how good he can be in the AHL and there's more room for him to grow there. Uh, and then a guy like Patrick Giles and stuff. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I just don't see it. Uh, him making the team out of camp with some of the guys with NHL experience like Alex True or Asplin, Delpy. Um, I think Maurice would maybe feel more comfortable about. And then also, again, Giles, uh, it's probably too important to the checkers to uh, be called up to the NHL to sit. If, uh, so unless he's playing like every day or rotating in a lot, I don't think he's really an option. Interesting preseason. You got the split squad games against Nashville, your traditional games against yeah. Nashville, Carolina. It's 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 going to be an interesting preseason to watch because and it starts next week, which is ludicrous. But it's interesting to watch because, as you say, not just because of mostly the defensemen, but it's also to see like what has changed. Because you know, Paul Maurice, we, we talked about last year a lot of things, you know, that we said that were negative. We had some vehement disagreements with what he was doing, but then he proved in the playoffs he did know what he was doing, and I think he coached magnificently in the playoffs. Like, this is the chance for him to show, you know, the evolution, because it's also not just the evolution of the team in terms of personnel and the evolution of the, the stars, it's also the evolution of the coaching. And having another year with the same system, with the same guys behind the bench, there's no dramatic change, which is never the case in Florida Panthers history. There's always something happening. Like, how does he evolve? And I also want to kind of, like, I'm curious about his messaging, you know, like, because I think he was really good at his messaging in the playoffs and what he was sending out and what he was sending to his team. What is the message this time? Because last year was always about we got to establish our style for the playoffs. we got to establish our style for the playoffs. And we got to be ready to play playoff hockey. And they were. They were right. So what's the message this year? You know, how do you build on that? Because I think where I see this team, and we'll not, we're not doing formal predictions yet, that'll come in the future, but like where I see this team is very Tampa in its, you know, they probably aren't going to get anywhere near close to winning the division. They don't need it. They're not going to be super impressive all the time, but they're probably going to finish with 100 plus points or somewhere in that vicinity. But if they're third in the Atlantic or wherever, whoever they're playing in the first round is going to have the fear of God put into them. Because they know what happened last year, and they're like, oh, crap, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that team, you know? Because then Matthew Kachuk's going to start bearing down on you, and it's all going to come back. And that's not a bad place to be at this point. Nope, nope, I'm excited. So we'll we'll see what happens in training camp. If there's a right-handed vet D added as a PTO, which is obviously a possibility. If there's any more PTOs, you know, outside of that. Um, yeah, but all we can do is help hope for health through training. Camp. It's literally, it's, it's, it's hoping for health at this point. And I think it's interesting just because of the, the evolution of the team. And also because as I said before, like they have a ton of goodwill from the cup run. And this is just from a fan base and looking at what the fans are saying perspective, right? They've got a lot of goodwill. 
I don't know when that runs out and when, you know, the alarm bells start going off like it kind of did a year ago. I think maybe you need kind of last year kind of performances, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. So it's, it's going to be interesting to watch this, but it's also going to be interesting just to see where they fit in in an Eastern Conference where everyone other than two teams is trying to win. You know, where and, and the other and the last point I'll make before we leave is I don't fear you know, the growth of Buffalo, Ottawa, Detroit, and those kinds of teams, because the Panthers have whooped on them the last few years, even when they were good. You know, they won three or four against the Sabres last year and won that most important game against them. They beat the Senators two out of three times. They've beaten Detroit something like 28 out of 30. Uh, That stat's probably exaggerated, but they own the Red Wings. So until they start losing games against those teams then I'm not going to be concerned because those are your four-point games, and the Panthers have often won those in recent years. Even when they weren't that good, they were winning games in the division. And last year's team did a lot of stupid things losing against teams they shouldn't have been losing against. As long as they're winning their games in the division and playing the kind of hockey that they need to play to win two out of every three games against the teams around them, and they're still beaten up on like the Montreals of the world who they also own, then they're probably going to be okay. And there's enough evidence and enough of a track record to suggest at this point that that's actually what they're doing. And that's what they've been good at consistently for years. So that's why I start with them as, you know, reasonably high playoff odds, even in the East that is very competitive and even where they don't have necessarily the highest ceiling. But as I told you in July, and that's my message going into the season, and as long as this message is, you know, as long as the evidence points to it, they didn't need to raise their ceiling necessarily because we know what that is. They needed to raise their floor. And I think everything they did in the offseason substantially raised their floor enough to the point where they're going to have some some squirrely moments, but I don't think a repeat of last year is necessarily on the, on the cards. I just think they're deeper now, and that's all they need to be. And if they get off to a fast start without Ekblad and Montour, then you really don't need to worry about it. So I think that's going to be it for now. We'll definitely have more coming up throughout the lead up to the season i'm really excited i'm really happy to be back doing this again we're both in a good place for this team until we speak to you next good night and good hockey